Well, good morning, church, and welcome back to online worship. Uh, if you're new, this is your first time joining us, welcome. My name is Ed. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the end of the second chapter of Acts as we continue on in our series on the book of Acts, and this morning as we talk specifically about, about community and church and what that looks like, um, really when it started uh, normally, Pastor Matt reads the passage ahead of time, uh, especially if it's a longer one, but uh, it's short enough this week that we're actually just going to walk through it together um, as we go through it uh, in the sermon. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 2, right at the end there, chapter, or verse 42, and we'll get to that in just a second. Um, we are, without a doubt, living in some unprecedented times uh, all of us are having to make some pretty big adjustments in order to, uh, to deal with the quarantine that's going on. And uh, for my family specifically, the way that looks is uh, each day uh, now homeschooling our two children who are in kindergarten and second grade. Uh, my favorite part of the day used to be walking my children just around the corner to Gaffney Lane Elementary Go, go Grizzlies, and um, dropping them off, I loved it, and saying to those professional educators, good luck with them today. And uh, I loved it so much, and uh, so it's a little scary, a little intimidating for, um, I, I think, Ellie and I to be diving into doing this ourselves. Uh, teachers are doing a great job of like helping us and kind of equipping us for it. Uh, but even they are kind of learning as they go how to help people learn through distance learning, um, especially a second grader and a kindergartner. Well, um, I could tell a couple of weeks ago when we started doing this that the, the mornings were some of the roughest part because just sort of getting going, you know, when your kids think, well, it's not like we're going to school anywhere. We're just staying here at home. And so I thought to myself, I, I want to help Ellie shift their mentality. And so um, I got up with them one morning and, uh, you know, made them breakfast. And I said, okay, guys, so uh, we're going to clean our rooms and make our beds and we're going to get dressed. And they're like, get dressed? What's that? You know, what are the clothes? What are those? You know, because they've been wearing... I don't know, yoga pants or whatever uh, for the last couple of weeks. And I said, uh, get dressed and then we're going to walk to school. And they were like, what? And so uh, they did get dressed. And um, I said, but because we're going on a special walk to school today, we get to take Barry, our dog. Uh, we normally don't get to take Barry to school because dogs aren't allowed on school uh, property. And uh, so Barry never gets to come with us when I walk him to school. Probably a good rule. So I said, let's... Uh, Let's take Barry and let's go on a walk to school. So we left and we uh, started walking and we uh, took this pretty long walk around the neighborhood, you know, a good 30 minute walk. And uh, then we got to the furthest point from our house and I said, okay guys, now let's turn around and let's head to school because school is at home. And so now we're gonna walk to school at home. And when we get there, we're gonna say, we're gonna ring the doorbell and we're gonna say, hey teacher, we're ready to learn, we're ready for school. And, uh, and I, and I kind of shouted out the door when we were leaving, okay, we're gonna get ready and walk to school. And when we get back, we'll be ready for school. Uh, while Ellie was kind of getting ready upstairs. I know, I know, I am like an amazing husband. Um, and so, we walked home and we made it to the front of the house and uh, I had them ring the doorbell and um, Ellie opened the door and they said, they said, they said, 
hey, teacher, we're here for school. We're here. We're ready to learn. And so they, they ran inside the house and, uh, and they, she shut the door and I stayed out in the front with the dog because I had to like, I don't know, host something off or move some trash cans or something. And so after about 20 minutes, I went inside when I was done and uh, my kids were uh, watching TV. And I was like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, we're watching TV. And I said, Ellie, what's going on? And she said, uh, it's like 8.30. We don't start school until 10. I don't start school until 10. And I was like, I got them all ready. I walked them. I mean, we all, I, I did this whole thing, you know? And she's like, yeah, that's great. But there's no way that I'm starting school until 10. And I was like, you know, their minds are awake. They're ready to learn. They're ready to go so early. And uh, that's a time you want to take advantage of. She's like, I don't care. Because if I start teaching them before 10, I'm going to kill them by like 1230 in the afternoon. And so I said, okay, and I went to work. And that was the last time I tried to help Ellie get the kids started for the day. Um, I don't think I'm the only one with a story like that because that kind of sums up a lot of our lives right now, trying to deal with all of these unique things that are happening and having a situation that presents itself and going, you know, this is not something I've ever encountered before. This is unprecedented. And what in the world are we gonna do to make it work? Uh, what we're reading about this morning in Acts is a situation exactly like that because we just read last week about an incredible, uh, an incredible situation in which the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit had indwelt the apostles and they were speaking in tongues and then Peter gave this amazing sermon and it says that thousands of people received the Holy Spirit, were baptized and became believers in one day. So in one day, in one sermon, really, the church goes from a few hundred to thousands of Jews in Jerusalem while they're celebrating the biggest holy day they have of the year. This is a crazy thing to have happen. And so what we're reading about now is what in the world they're gonna do now that they've got these thousands of people they're forming this new group and they have to figure it out. And so we're going to start in Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And um, we're going uh, to read our passage and then we're going to pray and then we're going to walk through it together. So uh, we'll put it up on the screen here. Acts 2, verse 42 is where we're going to start. Luke uh, writes here, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, uh, it is incredible to read about the way that you moved um, at this time, the way that you started your church here after Jesus. God, it is such a huge beginning involving so many people. And um, we look back on the days of the early church as a time that we really so much want to just emulate. We, we want to be like that. 
would you help us as we look at, uh, at what life was like for them? Would you help us understand um, what life is supposed to look like for us here and now in community, God? This is a time that we're coming to you when we are all desperate for community. And so it's a, it's a bit of a difficult passage to look at, God. Would you help us, rather than to be discouraged by it, to be encouraged and, and hopeful, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So first off, uh, we read here in what they did with these thousands of believers moving forward each day. Uh, and Luke is talking about um, really uh, probably several weeks um, of time uh, when they were, and it started with the holy day of Passover in Jerusalem. And uh, it says that as they, were, as they were going to temple each day, you get a sense that they were worshiping each day, they, uh, or each week, they were also uh, doing so much more. Uh, this group of people came together, and uh, they, they did uh, things like have fellowship and, and eat together and spend time around God's word. Now, one of the important things to know about this passage, just, just to give you a bit of a warning, um, there's going to be a lot of history in uh, this morning's message because uh, as we start to talk about the early church, we are talking about a group of people that a lot has been written about and it gives us a very clear understanding of what exactly their life was like and what exactly the people outside of, of this church thought of them and how they saw them. And we're gonna look at what several different groups of people thought about the church and why it affected the way that they chose to live. Now, one of the most important things to understand about this passage is that it is not what we call prescriptive. And what that means is that Luke is not writing about the way the church functions so that we can all try to copy them in every single way. He's not saying, this is the way that you're all supposed to live now, specifically. He's describing a unique situation. He's describing a set of circumstances that aren't often repeated. And so just like the lives that we're living right now in this quarantine where we, we know that, we hope that it's going to change eventually, that even hopefully in the next month or two, we'll get to slowly go back to life as usual. Uh, what we're doing now isn't necessarily what we would ever recommend that people do permanently. And there's a difference between things in the Bible that are prescriptive which we get in a lot of trouble a lot of the time when we take uh, parts of the Bible that are descriptive, which means they're describing something that happens, and we just assume that because it's in the Bible that we're being told, you have to do this thing, you have to live this way. Uh, now, there's plenty of the Bible that is prescriptive, but this description of the early church isn't like that. So the question is, how do we look at the way that they're choosing to live here and have community and take away from it the prescriptive things, the things that are that should influence us uh, in how we choose to live in community as the church today. There's a word in this passage, and it's probably not the word that you're thinking about because the word that most people think about in this passage is, uh, is the word fellowship. And we'll talk in a second about why that's a word that we focus on so much. But, um, but there's a word here uh, in the very first verse, it's the third word that we see, and this word tells us uh, the most important information about what made this group of people so different, and it is the word devoted. We see here, and they devoted themselves. 
and then we continue on with to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. In that verse alone, we really read about the four sort of pillars of what this early movement is all about. This is a group of people who were devoted to these things. If you look at the definition of the word devoted here in the New Testament, uh, this Greek word, when we translate it, it means this, literally, to persist in something despite the difficulties that oppose it. So to be devoted to something is to say, I started doing it uh, because maybe it was easy, it was natural, there wasn't really anything stopping me from doing it. But, uh, but to be devoted to something is to say, as things in my life come up that make it harder for me to do this, that give me reason to stop doing it, I have to choose to be devoted to that thing if I'm going to keep doing it. Now, most of the things in our lives we're not devoted to, and that's not a bad thing because you'd only be devoted to so many things in your life. Uh, you know, I pick up a new hobby every couple of months, and when I do, it's like I'm totally dive headfirst into it. It's what I'm all about for a couple of months, and then I move on to something different. And when, as I devote myself to that thing, I always have to let go of other things. Uh, now, uh, real devotion, true devotion, the kind that we really respect and want to have in our lives is, is, is the kind of, of devotion that you have to show something when you are uh, not just running out of time in your life and space to do things, but it's when life really starts to bring pressure on you. And that pressure says to you, uh, there are things that are opposing me doing this thing. Uh, there's, there might be a person who is uh, uh, so athletic and just loves being physically active and is then in a terrible accident and they're paralyzed and they're forced to live in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. In order for that person to continue to be devoted to physical activity, they have to persist because things are now opposing them. Uh, very difficult circumstances. And so they have to persist and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get past these hurdles that most people might not because of how devoted I am to that thing. So, so this idea, devotion, this is the word that characterizes this group of people, the early church. And when I say characterizes, I mean it makes them different from everyone else around them, both the other Jewish people, of which they are a part, and the pagans or the Gentiles or the other people living in the Roman world at the time who aren't uh, living in this sort of religious way. They devote themselves to four things. And here's what they are. The first one we read about is the apostles' teaching. So they, uh, Luke says they, have, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, and this teaching is, is different from the, the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, we, we, we saw that last week in Peter's message. Peter's sermon was an evangelistic sermon, right? He's proclaiming Jesus is this uh, and he's not this. Jesus rose again, Jesus is resurrected and you must believe in him and repent and be baptized. That whole message that he gave was a message of evangelism, a message, a proclamation of the gospel. We call it the good news. That message goes hand in hand with the apostles' teaching, but they're not the same thing. The apostles' teaching is what happens with those who respond to the work and the call of God. They choose to follow Jesus, and they say, we're now going to live as followers of Jesus, but we need to know how to do it. Jesus spent a lot of time teaching his disciples how to live for him, how to follow him. 
And now his disciples, the apostles, are spending a lot of time teaching other people how to follow Jesus. They're, they're showing them what it looks like to walk a life of faith. And that is the first thing that they say, we're gonna devote ourselves to this thing. It happens on a regular basis. What most likely happened was uh, they would go to the temple. At first, they would go every day because it was, a, it was the Passover. It was a very special time for all the people that had come to Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands and thousands of, of Jews had traveled to Jerusalem for this one uh, week period of time. And, uh, and after that, that initial week, uh, they all left. Uh, they had come from far and wide and they all left, except for the ones that lived in Jerusalem. Well, these thousands who were converted stayed. They stayed right there in the city and uh, they moved there. They, uh, they had no jobs, they had no stuff. And so, again, this is why what we read about happening in the community is, is describing what they did, but it's not saying to us, hey, you all need to go move somewhere else and you need to be kind of communists who like share everything in the way that they tend to. So what they would do is they would, they would go to temple uh, each day. And then after that first week, when there wasn't temple any, anymore every day because the holy days had ended, they would go once a week, just like we go to church. And they would worship together. Uh, and then on the first day of the week, uh, they would meet in one another's homes. And they would have these house churches. And in those homes, the apostles would come and they would teach them. They would teach them uh, how to love one another. They would teach them uh, things like uh, Jesus uh, had taught them the sermon on the mount, the way to have a righteous life, the way to be a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, these, uh, these, these, these apostles who taught would continue to pass on this knowledge that they have. And, and what we read about in the New Testament is that in these churches, there's always someone who's a teacher. And that person is generally also the shepherd. And we see it distinguished as a specific gift. Uh, teaching is a gift, just like um, Prophecy is a gift, and just like um, being an apostle is a gift, there are also teachers. Um, and, and these teachers, uh, the Bible tells us in other parts of the New Testament that, uh, that it's okay to, to basically allow this to be what they do for a living, like me, uh, because they want them to be able to devote enough of their time and their effort to really studying the scriptures and really teaching them thoroughly. Now, the, I would say the most important thing uh, that someone had to have in terms of their qualifications to be a teacher was they had to be able to continue teaching the thing that they had been taught and to not change it. So by, by way of a sort of illustration of how this plays out today and why, this is, uh, why we know this is important today, I want to show you um, two video clips really, really quickly. And uh, the, the first is from, um, is from Tom Hurt, the former lead pastor. The second one is from Bill Vermillion, the lead pastor before Tom. Okay, so, so watch these two clips. Hi, this is Tom. I am so thankful that when I retired, I could pass the mantle of leadership and preaching to a pastor that I knew would preach the word of God with integrity just as I tried to do, and the pastor be, pastors before me tried to do as well. It's my privilege to just tell you how much I endorse Tom Hurt as a man who would be able to faithfully teach others also. And I know that. Now, if you know me 
and Bill and Tom, you know that uh, the three of us are fairly different. Uh, probably most noticeable difference. I have a beautiful head of hair, uh, and but apparently I won't uh, because that's what this job does to you. Um, we are about as different as three guys can be in so many, so many ways. Uh, and yet with all of the differences in our personalities, in all the differences in our temperaments, our giftings, uh, the difference of the culture that we have lived in and lived amongst, um, and, and our approach to things, uh, our families, our background, our upbringing, our church, even history, all of the differences that Bill and Tom and I have, uh, there is one thing that has to be consistent. And that thing that has to be consistent is this, that, uh, that Tom knows that when he retires that I'm going to teach the very thing that he started out in ministry saying I'm going to teach. And Bill knows when Tom retires, then he retires, that Tom is going to step in and teach the very things that Bill began teaching when he began in ministry. And this is what we do. We, we hand it off and we make sure that this teaching is going, to be, is going to be biblical and it's going to not change. And why is that so important? Because we call the church to be devoted to it. We call the church to gather together and to hear this teaching and apply it to your lives and to do it on a regular basis. I mean, look at what we're doing. We're doing church and you're watching it on a TV and I'm recording it to send out to you. And why did we not just say, you know what, guys, the heck with it. Let's just take a couple months off. We'll see you in a while. Because we know that it's important that we devote ourselves, that we devote ourselves to the teaching, uh, the teaching of the apostles. The second thing that they had, it says, was fellowship. So they, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Just as Jesus walked with his disciples, uh, this was a movement that was built around togetherness, people being together, and it opposed radical individualism. It, it opposed the idea that as you seek to follow Jesus and follow God, that you're better off doing that alone and by yourself. It's always going to be in fellowship. Uh, you translate this word fellowship, it's uh, koinonia, uh, a word that many know very well. And uh, what's interesting is this is the word that most people would assume it, Acts 2 right here is all about. Uh, if, if I were to say, what's the one word, you know, that sums all this up, they'd say fellowship. It's a koinonia community because, uh, and yet if you read commentators on this passage, you read almost all of them agree that the church has actually kind of taken this idea of koinonia and we've sort of hijacked it and we've said uh, what the church has in koinonia, community fellowship, is this very powerful kind of fellowship. And it's so pure and it's so good and it's so perfect and it's so much better than what you see in the world outside of the church that, that that's kind of, uh, that's, uh, it's its own thing. When in reality, this word is actually translated only about 50% of the time in the New Testament to mean fellowship, to mean community. The other times, it simply means a partnership. In fact, there are times when it's used to refer to husbands and wives, it's used to refer to people engaging in sin, people doing bad things together. Because koinonia, fellowship, is just a partnership. Why does it matter here? Because it says that they devoted themselves to being partners with one another. We're gonna go through this thing together. I mean, how easy would it have been for people to just go back home and to leave Jerusalem, but they stayed because they believed they needed to be in partnership with one another. 
another. And the reason for this is that a Christian will learn as they grow in their faith that all of the things that we devote ourselves to besides this, prayer, uh, worship, breaking of bread, uh, uh, the teaching of the apostles, all of these things have to happen in community with other people. They're not really meant to happen in isolation and alone. And if we don't have community, we miss out on something. The New Testament talks so much about this that you can't even scratch the surface in one message. But if you were to, for most of us, we've just, we've assumed and we've gotten so used to the language of community in the New Testament that we don't even see it anymore. But the truth is, Every description of the church and what it means to be a believer is about a group of people. Even the idea of being a part of a body of Christ, right? We're not told you're the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. You have all these different parts and all these different gifts and they work together, but then there's Jesus and you need him to be your head or your heart or something. No, what we read about is that the church is the body of Christ. You are just a part of it. If you're not in fellowship, You're just like a hand that's out there flopping around on the ground. You're just a bunch of lips making a lot of noise and you may think you're a great speaker, but if you're not in fellowship, uh, then good luck. You're not worth anything really. The things you're doing are pretty worthless. Uh, We read in um, so many descriptions in every single other New Testament book about this idea of of, of things happening in community. Uh, You you see right here in Hebrews chapter 10, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. So so what it says here in in the first verse, uh, in the first part of, of, of verse 24 is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So uh, love and good works and these things, they don't happen because I set out on my own to be a loving person who, makes, who has good works in my life. Uh, it, might, it actually usually feels like if you, if you get away from people completely, uh, well, one of the things that I found is that it is a lot easier to love people when there are no people around. Uh, it is a lot easier to be a nice person, a kind person, a forgiving person, a gracious person when there are no other people. Uh, I'm pretty sure if I lived on a desert island, I would be like a way nicer version of myself because there'd be no people to ruin it. But uh, we cannot simply strive to uh, have love and good works uh, alone. Uh, The author of Hebrews is saying that we stir each other up to those things. Uh, This is just one example of the language in the New Testament that says again and again to us, you are meant to do this whole thing in community. So these, uh, these new followers of Jesus, these new members of the church devoted themselves not only to the teaching of the apostles, but to fellowship together. According to the Bible, the entire Christian life, including spiritual growth, including battling sin and battling Satan, serving God, these are all intended to be done in community. Passages in Ephesians, for example, that describe these things, they're all in the plural, suggesting that we do all of these things with other people. The the third thing that they devote themselves to is the breaking of bread. 
Now, one of the you know, first things that we think of is breaking of bread is probably communion. And in this time, it probably wasn't something that they participated in every time they gathered together in the church. Um, they probably, they, I mean, they did take communion, but it wasn't every week, every time they gathered together. Uh, this phrase, breaking of bread, was used much, much more, like was used very abundantly before Jesus used those words um, with his apostles or with his disciples. And it just means to sit down and to share a meal together. And so they also ate together. Why is that important? Why is he mentioning that they ate meals together? Not because they ate every single meal together. Not because we're supposed to only eat with other people so they can see what we're eating or something. In fact, the breaking of bread and eating of meals together becomes a real issue for people in the church as the Jews and the Gentiles start to coexist because they have different dietary laws. They have different rules about the things they're allowed to eat and whether those things are good or bad. And it seemed really common in the early church to just get together regularly and eat meals. People built community around this. What was Jesus' most intimate time with his disciples was the Last Supper. It was, a, it was a night that they spent together having a meal and he talked with them and taught them over a meal together. Why, do, why is this an important thing? Well, it's very simple, guys. Because we all have to eat. Uh, we all eat, everybody. There are lots of other things that you don't like doing that I like doing. There's uh, lots of things that I don't have in common with many people in the church, but the one thing I have in common with those people is uh, we all got to eat at some point. And so why not eat together? Why not do this thing that we all have to do at some point, and why not do it together instead of in isolation? This is why people break bread together, why they share meals. Uh, Because it's something that you can all have in common, and do with one another just as easily as you can do it alone. Why do families emphasize to this day the importance of eating a meal together, right? Having dinner together, maybe having breakfast together. You know, once a day we're going to have a meal. In our family, it's, it's important to sit down and have dinner together as much as we can. Why? Because relationships aren't things that you can just say, let's all have a relationship by getting together one night a week, and making sure that in that one night, we all do the important stuff. We have the deep conversations. We talk about all the deep stuff. We laugh the most. We cry the most. We, we share the most things. That's when we'll just get it all out, right? No, because relationships are about quantity as much as they're about quality. You have to spend lots of time together, regular time together. It's in the little things in life that we grow close to each other. So the, uh, so the early church... Is, is filled with these people who have dedicated, devoted themselves to eating meals together. And the last one it says is prayer. They prayed together. Now there's two kinds of prayer. There's the kinds of prayer that you learn growing up and you memorize it and, uh, and then you say that specific prayer in a specific instance and they prayed that way together sometimes. Uh, the Jewish tradition had lots of those prayers. Jesus himself taught the Lord's prayer. He said, pray this way specifically. But there was other prayer that they did as well, and it's the kind that we're more familiar with. It's the kind of prayer where you just start talking to God. And they did this together, and this was important to them. Now, prayer is a hard thing for most of us to think about doing with other people. Most of the people that I know are very uncomfortable praying in a group. They just are. Uh, it makes sense, really. You're, you're saying personal things. 
uh, it almost feels like a form of public speaking. You're so focused on what this person is gonna hear and think and how you're gonna sound and that you're gonna make sense that it's hard to really just uh, let your guard down enough to really sincerely talk to God is how most people feel. And yet, they devoted themselves to praying together. Now, uh, it was that important that they made it a priority, one of the pillars that they built this early church on. We, uh, we feel uh, ashamed sometimes when we don't even know how to pray. And I honestly have taken a lot of comfort in knowing that most people aren't comfortable praying because it means that if I'm not comfortable praying, then I'm in good company, right? We have prayer and healing services here once a year. And when we have these services, there are people who come who are clearly gifted prayers. They pray eloquently and passionately. But then there's also the people who come because they came with a friend or because they needed healing and they felt led to pray for a person. And they're not an experienced, polished, fancy prayer. And people are just as blessed by those prayers as the others. In fact, we read in the Bible about the people who are really good at praying, and Jesus often says to them, listen, uh, if you're so great at praying where other people can hear you, you may need to like step back a little bit and think about, do I actually pray just between me and God ever? Uh, you, you might wanna like make sure that you could talk to God when other people aren't around and that this isn't just about you impressing other people. But there does seem to be a push for the rest of us who aren't comfortable praying in front of and with other people, uh, that we do this thing, that we devote ourselves to this thing. I think this is, this is really convicting, but there's a reason why they did it. And there's a reason it mattered. Because a group of people who pray together is a group of people who are saying that we place such an emphasis not on our own understanding, our own thoughts, our own desires, but that we submit ourselves to God's direction. We, we live in a, in a world that values so much understanding yourself, right? What do I really want? What do I really think? How do I really feel? What do I really need, right? And to pray is to say, uh, I want to be driven, not by those things. I want to be driven by God's direction. I want to be influenced by God. I actually need to hear from God. I need the Spirit to steer me and move me. If the Holy Spirit doesn't, then I know that all the things I do are just the things I want to do. And I know that that's not at all an indication that they're the right thing to do. There's a lot of arrogance in not praying ever. And there's a lot of humility involved in coming to God and saying, God, I don't know what the right thing is to do. I maybe don't even know the right way to feel. God, would you direct me and guide me? Honestly, if we all just stopped right now and started living our lives in a way that gave God the opportunity to direct us more, I talk to people so much of the time who, who feel so confused and, 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 and not knowing what they're supposed to do in life and where they're supposed to go, how to handle a situation, can't figure out why they're in the situation that you're in, they're in in the first place, and yet they have not at all stopped and thought to ask God, God, what is it that you want here? And this group of people were devoted to doing this together, to praying together. 
These are the four things they devoted themselves to. Now, to understand a little bit about uh, this early church group, we have to understand it in the context of the time. Uh, this was not called a church and these were not called Christians. The, the name that is used the most to refer to this early gathering of believers is the way. They were referred to as the way. That's what they were called, the way. This early group of Christians were actually considered so devout, so serious and devoted to what they were doing, that people thought of them as even a cult. I mentioned before, I get these different obsessions all the time, right? Um, I, I can start to do this. Uh, here, look, this is a picture of me about a month ago uh, plant, starting seeds for my garden. Uh, and as you can see, I'm starting quite a few seeds. Um, and, uh, and then if you look at this next picture, this is all my trays laid out. And then if you look at this next picture, this is my mobile greenhouse that I built so that I could, I could move it out into the sun when it was warm and I could move it into my garage and put some like fluorescent lights on it when it wasn't uh, sunny outside or when it was nighttime. Uh, now, uh, I, I, what I thought to myself was, well, hey, I mean, you know, you get like hundreds of seeds in a packet, so why not just plant all those seeds and I could sell plants, I can do whatever, had all these big ideas and then this quarantine happened and I was like, like, I don't think anybody's going to be like gathering together to buy plants anywhere. So now I'm just kind of left with all of these, of these plants. But um, this is what it looks like, right? So at first it's like, oh, I'm kind of into gardening. I'm kind of into gardening. And then you see this and you go, yeah, that's a little too much, right? That guy's obsessed. We all know what it's like when somebody we care about becomes too involved in something and we get a little concerned for him. We think that things are okay in moderation, but beyond a certain point, those things can be pretty bad, right? Uh, if you know a cat lady, right? A cat lady is somebody who started out liking cats and now has like a million cats and she like runs around throwing cats at people to get off her property or something. Uh, you all know people who are, they went from being really into sports to being a fanatic about sports. Um, like I've actually talked to people who will in all seriousness be like, I think he's a great guy, but I just, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how he can like the Dodgers, and I don't know how, like, to, like, relate to him. Or I was talking to a friend once, and I was like, how are you doing? And he, and he was, like, very serious, and he was like, you know, you just have this season, you have these times in your life where you just, you feel like your team cannot do anything right. And I like, thought he was going to tell me his marriage was falling apart or things with his kids, but he was saying like his baseball team that he was following, that he was a huge fan of, he was just so bummed out by their performance right then that it was like, like you know, shaking his faith his whole life, right? Uh, you, know, you know people who get involved in a pyramid scheme, right? They go like, oh, I found this great way to make some residual income and you can find out about it too, right? And then you go, oh, no, okay. Well, I guess I'm not going to be talking to them for a while because I don't think I want to get sucked into that thing either. Uh, the point when we worry is when an obsession with something forces a person to become alienated from other people from relationships especially because they're the most important thing, right? It's when the obsession takes over, it crowds everything else out because all kinds of things in life are good in moderation. This is how people view religion. Religion is fine in moderation, right? It's when you become too into it. It's when you get too serious or too devout. That's when we start to feel a little uncomfortable with things. 
The truth of the matter is that this early church, this sect of Jews uh, that were known as the Way, uh, this group was known more than anything else at the time as a cult. If you look at the definition of a cult, this is what it is. It's a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. And that word sinister. Sinister. Oh, that's, that's a little heavy, right? We think of a cult as being a very negative thing. And yet it surprises a lot of us to know that this is how the overwhelming majority of people saw the early church. They were a bunch of zealots. They were a bunch of way too devoted, way too serious, way too intense religious radicals. There was a man named Pliny the Younger, not to be confused with Pliny the Elder, who was also someone in, in history. Uh, Pliny the Younger uh, lived around 100 AD and uh, he was a Roman official. And uh, there are some recordings of things that he wrote to his superiors where he described what these Christians were like from an outside perspective. This is a pagan, a Roman pagan. And he says this to his superior as he's kind of describing what it was like for these people to do what they were doing. He said, they met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, to commit no breach of trust and to not deny a deposit when called upon to restore it. After this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble, to take food of an ordinary harmless kind. Uh, but they had in fact given up the practices of my edict issued on your Trahan's instructions, which banned all political societies. This made me decide that it was all the more necessary to extract the truth by torture from two slave women whom they call deaconesses. And he, and he ends by saying, I found nothing but a degenerate sort of cult carried to extravagant lengths. He goes on to say, a great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women are being brought to trial and this is likely to continue. It is not only the towns, but villages and rural districts too, which are being infected through contact with this wretched cult. So this man, Pliny the Younger, was infuriated above all else because he believed that this backwater, foolish, ignorant cult uh, filled with commoners and slaves and poor people, um, as, as filled as it was with wealthy people as well, uh, that they refused to obey the emperor's edict, which was to worship the emperor and to worship the gods of Rome. Uh, in his eyes, uh, they were atheists. One, uh, one historian, Justo Gonzalez, says this when he describes uh, the different ways that groups of people saw the Christians. Okay, so first, he says, from the point of view of those Jews who rejected Christianity, Christianity was not a new religion, but a heretical sect within Judaism, going from town to town, tempting good Jews to become heretics. For these reasons, in most of the New Testament, it is the Jews who persecute Christians. He goes on and says, the cultured Greeks' main objection was that Christianity was a religion of barbarians. They derived their teachings from Greeks, not from Greeks or Romans, but from Jews. Furthermore, the Jewish and Christian God is ridiculous. Its followers claim, on one hand, that God is omnipotent, 
high above every creature, but on the other hand, depict him as a busybody who's constantly delving into human affairs, who goes into every home and is listening to what is said and is checking to see what is even cooked. Does this sound like some of the objections that people might have to the Christian God today? This, uh, this God who we believe is so big and so all-powerful, and yet he cares about who we're sleeping with, who we love, the way that we raise our families and children, the way that we live our lives, the words that we use, the, uh, and, and the habits that we have. The Jews saw them as heretical. The Greeks saw them as barbarians who were ignorant. They were offended by the fact that they claimed to own the truth and that it hadn't come from a Greek mind. And yet, there was a Christian apologist at the time, Aristides, and in his apology, he writes this, and an apology is sort of a defense of the faith. He says, their oppressors, they appease and make them friends. They do good to their enemies. They love one another, and from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. If you look at verse 43 in Acts chapter 2, our passage this morning, you, you read that an awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. You see, uh, the Christians were seen as a cult, as religious zealots, as people whose devotion made them freaks, and a danger to society. And yet, how did they respond? They responded by loving their opponents and oppressors. They responded by showing a kind of love for one another that didn't involve the prejudice, the sexism, the chauvinism, the uh, ethnocentrism, or the uh, arrogance of class distinction. They... uh, converted and won over vast numbers of Jews and vast numbers of Gentiles. And what it tells us here is that people were in awe of God because he was the one that was adding to their numbers. The opponents of these people thought that they needed moderation. Just tone it down and we'll be happy. Uh, Their adherents, their supporters, their admirers were people who saw this kind of community and saw the life of faith that this produced and couldn't deny the truth of it. So, what if, now hear me out on this, What if being a cult isn't that bad? 
What if being seen as an extremist isn't that bad? What if the only way to really follow Jesus is to be a religious zealot, to be devoted to your faith in a way that other people find um, scary? I think the world would like nothing more than for us to have a very lukewarm view of what it means to have community. These Christians weren't known for how much they just loved each other. They were known for how much they loved the people outside the church as well. C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters, uh, letters from uh, sort of a, a demon who's trying to win over the soul of a Christian. Um, he, he talks a lot about uh, the desire for Satan to convince us that just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of belief, just a little bit of devotion is exactly what we need. That he's less interested in making outright atheists out of us and more interested in making people who believe that all things, including faith, are good in moderation. God does not call us to moderation. He doesn't call us to a lukewarm following of Jesus. He doesn't call us to celebrate the resurrection once a year on Easter and to celebrate the birth of Jesus once a year on Christmas. He doesn't call us to uh, make him holy in our lives one day out of the week. He doesn't call us to... Uh, to pray publicly when we're with some people or, uh, and not pray the rest of the time. He doesn't call us to uh, have some of the Bible in our lives when people can explain it to us like this. He calls us to devote ourselves to the understanding of Scripture. The reason this time is so hard right now for the church is because, as I said last week, this is in church. This isn't meeting and gathering together. It was in the context of community and fellowship that these things had to happen. We have growth groups in our church who are using Zoom room, like video conference meetings, to have meals together, to do growth group questions together. I remember Pastor Matt told our growth group leaders uh, right when this quarantine began, he said, he said, we're not going to be able to meet, so just don't don't stress about it, okay? It's okay if you don't meet. It's okay if you guys can't get together because right now with the rules that are in place, we just can't make that happen and it's okay. We can have a break from it if we need to. And it wasn't more than a couple of weeks before he began to be inundated with emails and calls from growth group leaders saying, okay, we figured out how to video conference. We had a meal together over this. We actually did a whole growth group over this. We got it together and caught up over this and people finding all kinds of different ways to be able to still have community. Why? Because they recognize that there is no way to really be a follower of Jesus without devoting yourself to these things and that these things happen in a group of people. They don't happen in isolation. This is a rather discouraging time to look at this passage because we're looking at it at a time, maybe the only time in many of our lives, when we'll ever be forced to not have community. But I don't think that it's an accident. 
I don't think it's an accident that God has us looking here in Acts 2 at a time when no matter how hard we try, we can't have the kind of community that Peter talks about. And I think it's because if there's one thing that we take for granted in the church, it is the community. We are so selective about the people that we choose to be around and invest in. We are so focused on people in our own life stage, in our own gender, who believe the same things that we do and have the same backgrounds that we have or, or, or like the same teams that we like. Uh, we are so narrowly focused on so few people because we take community, this group of others around us, for granted. The encouragement we get from the early church here is this, that if we are going to live our faith out in the way that the disciples and the apostles taught the early church to do it, the way Jesus taught his followers to do it, then we'll probably be seen as extremists. We'll be seen as people who are maybe a little too devout. We'll be seen as people who have maybe given over too much of their life. And yet the truth is, as much as the world might say, uh, that it wants people with a lukewarm faith. It wants people who just believe a little bit. That same culture, that same world would turn right around and immediately point out even the smallest inconsistency in a person following Jesus. Would use examples of people who have misinterpreted the Bible and abused Scripture for, for ill-gotten ends. Uh, would use those examples to say, uh, do you see how people distort this faith? Do you see how people use religion for bad things? Do you see how people claim to be one way and live another way? And the answer that we give to them is exactly. What the world needs is not people who believe less in following Jesus. What the world needs is more people who believe in being more devoted, who believe in being more devout. Because the more serious we get about our faith, the less hypocritical we appear. And the more the world is blessed by that. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the example of the early church We see how the difficulty is in the devotion, God. The difficulty is in continuing to meet together, continuing to break bread together, continuing to uh, sit under your teaching, Lord, and to be shaped by it. The difficulty is in continuing to seek you in prayer and say, God, what do you want? What do you think? when we're so confident we know what we think and what we want. God, would you help us to see how vital it is that we be devoted? Would you help us let go of the fear that keeps us from wanting to be seen as extremists or zealots? And would you help us to have the courage to not care what other people think in the, sh what other people think in the short term? Because most of the time we know that in the long term they'll be grateful we did that as well, God. God, we are desperate for community. We miss community. We long for community. We can't wait till the day that we can be together again as a church body. Would you show us in this time how valuable this really is? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.